Welcome to On Target, the podcast helping software sales leaders drive more pipeline and close transformational deals. I'm your host, Alex Elaine. Let's get into it. I think for those of us that are talking to customers all day, every day, it's easy for us to be like consistent on how do we take what we're trying to do as a company and our company values and our company messaging and align that to what's real. The less you talk to customers, the easier it is to be disconnected from that. And so I think, you know, trying to make a regular habit of not only like circulating feedback back, but also getting people engaged with customers. Let's get this started as everyone just starts to warm their way into the room. Let us know, why did you choose a career in sales? Now, I believe that there'll be a link to Slido in the chat that Tyler will hopefully put in there in a moment. So you can share your answer there. Also put it in the Zoom chat and let us know why you chose a career in sales. Just as we get some answers warmed up, Let's get the short version of that uh, answer. Let's start with you, Oli. Uh, why did I, you start? My first thought was, why did you put choose on that? I'm not sure anyone chooses a career in sales. <laughs> I think we all fell into it. I did a graphic design degree, yes, you do. And then I went for a job in graphic design, and then I couldn't use a computer. It was the wrong era. Then I went into a marketing job that was door-to-door sales, and I had to stop that because I heard someone's front wall and broke my ankle. And then I went into recruitment and then the next career path from there was into sales. So I fell into it, literally fell into it. And uh, it wasn't a choice. It was where I ended up, but I absolutely love it. And I'm glad I did it. Love it. Tony. I'd have to say something similar. The word choice is a funny one. I got tricked. I think that's the way that I would describe it. So I had a business degree. I interviewed for a bunch of jobs. I liked one. I only got one offer and it was called a market development representative, which Apparently, for those of you that don't know, means cold calling strangers to get them to evaluate buying software. And so it uh, turned out to be a, a blessing in disguise. Very nice. Very nice. I was probably a bit biased with the, the question because I actually did choose yeah. a career in sales after studying law. Something compelled me to want to be a BDR in the printer and copier game. And uh, here we are 12 years later on this event with two very special guests. So on that note, let's work our way into the agenda. First and foremost, just some quick housekeeping. The session's recorded, as you can see. We ask that everyone stays muted and until we get to the Q&A section at the end. I believe there's a link in the chat section for a Slido. So please, at any time, feel free to submit your questions. We'll leave about 10 to 15 minutes towards the end and we will get through all of them. We've had great engagement on events up until now, so please don't be shy and answer the questions. I can see Jesse already asked if the recording will be shared afterwards. The question, the answer is yes, but please do stay with us so we can get as much interaction as we can. Now, on that note, we will do some introductions before we shift gears and get into the meat and bones of the event. So, of course, me, myself, Alex Elaine, host and founder of On Target, very recently VP of sales at Braze, and now recently started my own company called Sashift. I will, on that note, pass over to Tony. Uh, yeah, Tony Jackson spent my entire career in software sales, predominantly leadership roles, uh, a lot of early stage startups and fortunate to be with Tableau Software, MongoDB and Snowflake from a pre-IPO through IPO phase. And uh, now spending my time uh, mostly on advisory roles and investment opportunities. 
Awesome. Ollie. Hi, my name's Ollie Sharp. So I started my proper career at Link after recruitment at uh, LinkedIn, did 10 years at LinkedIn, but when I started, it was real startup a long, long time ago. Did 10 years there. Then I moved to a company called Salesloft in the sales engagement space, and I set them up in EMEA. And about three years later, left, and I'm now at a company called Abacom, which is FP&A software, looking to grow the business there. And I also do a bit of advisory and uh, board work for other companies as well. Wonderful. Well, I promised we would have some special guests, and I think that's great evidence of that. Absolutely. So to anyone who submitted their starting in sales stories, appreciate it. I'm going to get straight into the event itself, but hopefully we can pick some of those out towards the tail end. So Ollie and Tony, I have a number of questions for you and also just want to keep it as, as conversational as we can. So I'm going to kick off with a question. This is all about really repeatable and building go-to-market plans and strategies that can set companies and teams and, and reps up for success over time. So the first thing I'd love to ask is really what are some of the, the foundational, some of the fundamental elements that need to be in place for a SaaS sales team or a region to enable them to drive consistent and repeatable results over time? So I'll kick off with you on this one, Tony, and uh, let's dive in. I think it all starts with people. And so having a, you know, a philosophy around the profile of people that you want, the characteristics that matter, the skills that matter, and then an emphasis on the things that you're going to develop and really hang your hat on. And so for me, the foundation of that has always been, I want people who are going to take pride in consistently generating pipeline, right? So having the attitude of pipeline is my responsibility and the best salespeople always are the best at creating their own pipeline. And that doesn't mean mindlessly cold calling people. That means they're really thoughtful and they're really creative and they think through, you know, how can they leverage others? And there's an organization to it. There's a discipline to it. And they know I keep filling my pipeline and then it gives me opportunities to become a master at net new meetings, discovery, articulation of what we do, right? And then managing pipeline, right? So how do we qualify and, and have a, a framework around that and spend time on the right accounts, the right opportunities and, and building champions? People and pipeline, the two Ps, got it. Yeah, Only yeah. love to uh, hear the same from you. I completely agree with Tony. I think it depends on the stage. I think that the bits that I was thinking more about was, I mean, obviously the people, but the technology, having the technology in place, because the more you give it just to humans, the more random it becomes and people want to do their own thing. So having the right technology in place, whether it's a sales engagement tool, using the CRM properly, and whether it's Vidyard or whatever you want to use, but also defining the processes and the narrative. I think are very important. And in the time I was helping other companies between two jobs, what I found was a particular startup world, there wasn't much consistency about how companies spoke about that product and what they do. So if you want to be consistent and predictable, teaching people how to talk about the products and the actual outcomes it impacts rather than just what the technology is in the use case and putting the right processes in place. And it's just back to the basics. It's the people, the processes the narrative and the technology, but all of those give you the foundations to be predictable and consistent. Just on that, Ollie, I'd love to know how much burden you put on, say, a, a marketing team versus actually your sales team's ability to 
understand the messaging and articulate it because there's really two halves to that, right? Marketing or other supportive teams control or aid with the message to the market. And then you've got actually the articulation of that message to the prospects. And so how do you think about those two pillars? I think it's marketing's job to get the message out there. And I think it's down to individuals wherever they sit in the business to define the narrative. And LinkedIn, I defined the narrative for a part of the business and I ended up rolling out globally and I was from sales. So I don't, I don't think it's really anyone's job to do specifically to say you own building the narrative. It's just something that I enjoy doing and I think is important. And I've seen the impact of if you can actually teach your salespeople to talk about it in a defined way then it has a big impact but i think and marketing can get involved it's just whoever is there and a lot of time you have the the product marketing people as well but it's their job to get the message out it's normally my job or the sales team job to make sure we're talking about it in the right way mm, i completely with you tony i want to um, go to you with this on a bit because when, when we think about just the broader company we're talking about marketing other teams other departments you know, all companies are going to have their own sales strategy or a broader company vision. And I'd love to know how you think about unifying those two worlds where you've got a company that got a set of principles and values. You're then a revenue leader who's responsible for driving revenue and, and uh, performance and consistency in that. How do you find a way to bridge those two worlds and make sure that actually you can talk from the same hymn sheet? Yeah, I think there's a few things to that. I, I think the first one is you have to have a corporate or company culture that is really centered around your customer and being rooted in the realities of the voice of the customer. And then once that's your foundational principle, really creating processes internally where you're consistently sharing that across the business. And so, you know, the sales team or, you know, in businesses that have customer success functions, those are the people that are having the most interactions with customers every day, right? And so creating a process that that feedback is getting back to the rest of the organization. I think for those of us that are talking to customers all day, every day, it's easy for us to be like consistent on how do we take what we're trying to do as a company and our company values and our company messaging and align that to what's real. The less you talk to customers the easier it is to be disconnected from that. And so I think, you know, trying to make a regular habit of not only like circulating feedback back, but also getting people engaged with customers. So getting your product team on the phone, in meetings, in person with your customers, that's how you kind of keep it all one and the same. Yeah, it, it makes a lot of sense. You, you've so far spoken a lot about customers, people, and then of course, pipeline, all really, really important and fundamental things. So let's just touch on some of the, the metrics that you feel are really important. So when you put yourself back in your operator hat, you know, what were the metrics that you were focused on or looking at on a daily basis that could really move the needle? Yeah, the ones that really mattered the most to me were, you know, net new opportunities created and then looking at weighted pipeline. And the reason why I start with those two is those are the metrics that ultimately matter and are the leading indicators for how much revenue you're going to bring in. And, you know, based on where those things relate to your ability to close revenue, you start to make adjustments. So if you're seeing somebody who can create a lot of net new opportunities, 
it's not translating into, I have a healthy pipeline that's going to allow me to consistently hit my number. It lets me know that like, there's something missing there. And so you can work on the skills, you know, related to that. Or if you say, Hey, we don't have enough net new opportunities. Great. This is more of a volume game. I need to work on my pipeline generation. I just need more. I can convert really well and I can convert, you know, large deals, but I don't have enough of them. So it just, those two metrics to me, if you really like just anchor on them, it'll allow you to go from there and say, Hey, here's the underlying metrics, you know, that I want to look at if those are out of place or if the ultimate indicator that we want closed business is not where we want it to be. We can do something about it. Nice. Oli, I'd love to, to ask you the same, you know, what are the, the metrics that you're predominantly focused on? I think Tony's right. I think that depending on your level, and I think that if you're, it's, it should sort of come down like a pyramid, if you like, that when you're at the top, if you're looking at leading indicators and a lagging indicator, to me, I always try to look for two leading and one lagging because I think that the lagging is your results and you're two leading. And like Tony said, he's gone for one at the beginning of pipeline and mid-pipeline weighted and, and pipeline generation. And I think that's completely right. And I think that what like when I was at Salesforce managing the FDR leader and the AE leader and the account manager leader and then the customer success leader, I always look for that same structure within each of them. So for with the SDR leader, I'm looking at day one cadences plus pipe gen, et cetera. And then for an AE, I'm looking for very much like what Tony said. So I tried to build a structured framework that I look for two leading and one lagging. And that's how I measure them. And with the leading, if it's step one cadences, if they're not hitting it, then you look further. Is it number of calls? It, 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 you're building it sort of backwards sort of thing. And sorry, pipeline opportunities created, you build it backwards. So just building it like that, having two leading, one lagging, that's the structure I always go for. And then I would expect my SDR manager to manage their team exactly the same as that. Look for the leading indicators. And if you're not finding you're hitting those, then you dig deeper into more KPIs. It's fascinating as a topic because I was actually speaking to a, a revenue leader yesterday. And one of the things we were talking about was this difference between being a, an inspirational leader versus a highly data-driven analytical leader, right? And just the nuance between those two types of personas. And something that was just going through my head as you were talking through that, Ollie, is especially in a scenario where you're running a region, hiring other leaders, for example, to work with you and as a part of your team, how do you think about that balance between being that inspirational empowerment style of leader versus also that need to be able to look at the data, do the analysis, and sometimes lead with data. Just love to get your perspective on whether you feel often it's one versus the other, or if there's a way to bridge those worlds. A hundred percent. I think there is definitely a bridge. There's a really good podcast that John McMahon did with Luca Lazaron, who was the CRO of Sprinkler, I think. And he talks about inspiring others to be either committed or compliant. And there's a big difference. When you're managing others, if you're saying you need to do 100 calls, you need to create this many opportunities, etc., that's to be compliant, to tick a box and say, yes, I'm doing the activity. If you're saying, okay, we're going to get this business to 5 million and we know that to be efficient, each person, if they're doing 100 calls, if they're doing this, we will get to 5 million. And that's when you're actually getting them to commit to a purpose. So I believe there is a complete balance where you can actually use the, the data driven, but get them going towards a uh, sort of the purpose 
the end goal that you can build because really all the activity is a recipe for success. It's not a way for me to manage you with a stick. And if you can link those two together, I think it helps you inspire a team to reach that common goal. That's a great way of bridging this together. And Tony, I'm about to ask you the same because you were smiling. So I want to get your perspective. But something I just want to add to what Oli was sharing there is I think the more proximity you can have with your team to really understand their why, their personal and their professional goals, I think that can be a really useful thing to also aid with this committed piece. Because, you know, I, I see our role as leaders to aid people on that journey to getting towards their personal and professional goals. And that's unique and different to each individual. So the more proximity you have with that, and then you can share a, a company vision, a mission, or a set of data that says, if you go through these things, it helps to take us on this journey as a company, but it also accelerates your own journey to your personal and professional outcomes. That's a really powerful way to be able to take a message to your team and encourage them to actually go out there and outperform themselves each day. So I just wanted to add to that. Tony, love to get your perspective on this as well. You almost said it exactly the way I would say it, which is <laughs> really about like genuine authenticity and the way that I've always viewed you know, corporate America is that companies serve as vehicles to help people accomplish outcomes, right? And so if you think about the world that way in the role of, you know, a revenue leader, you are looking for people who have goals that you can create opportunities that align such that, you know, if they do the things that you know need to be done in order for the company to achieve success, it will help them achieve the goals that they have individually. And the most important part of that is you have to genuinely care, right? And if that's your basis, you combine that with, you know, the data-driven approach to we understand and through my experiences and the experiences of others, if you follow this path, you will be successful. That's a beautiful place. That's harmony right there. I love it. I, I want to pivot slightly here and, and stick with you, Tony, on this one, first of all, is just to understand some of the, the habits and the routines that you've observed in top performing sales reps that have made their performance more consistent and predictable, especially because you have such a big focus on people. I, I'd love to hear that from you. Yeah, I think Ollie said the right word from, you know, John McMahon, who was a mentor to me, you know, committed. I think that's what it is. When people who are intentional about their success and are not going to accept failure as an option, they show discipline, right? Every day they wake up with a purpose, with a plan, and they execute it. And that means the days that they don't feel like it, they still do it, right? And I think that's actually the most important part. So being organized, coming to the table and saying, hey, I have a game plan every single day about what I need to do to create new pipeline, manage my existing pipeline, take care of my existing customers, that type of organization and thoughtfulness with, you know, metric oriented goals. Those are the people that will have success consistently over a long period of time. And on that, Tony, you know, we hear this term discipline and I'm completely with you around just how important it is. But sometimes I find that, you know, for some people that they don't know, is this something that they are born with? Can you really cultivate discipline? Can you cultivate some of that hunger, drive, tenacity, some of these other things that we attribute with successful salespeople often. 
you know, do you feel that people can cultivate these types of things? And if so, any ways they can go about that? I think so, but I think it has to come from the person, right? I don't know necessarily, you know, and candidly, I just don't want to be in the business of trying to make other people become disciplined, right? So there are plenty of people that have, you know, the motivation and the grit and the, you know, eagerness to learn and the eagerness to win that I'm always going to choose to surround myself with those people. And, you know, for me, from a hiring perspective, I've always thought, hey, I bet on characteristics on people, right? Their talent candidly, and what culture do they add to my team? Those are more important components than experience to me personally, because I know if they're willing to learn and they're willing to put in the work and they're intelligent and they've got all that, I can teach them the rest, right? And I can lead them in the right way. So I do think that people go through different chapters in their life and you know they change or different circumstances pop up that they can become more focused, more goal-oriented, more disciplined, all of those things. But I don't know that I want to be the person to have to, you know, crack the whip and try to get people to work or want it, right? I like that answer a lot. Ollie, about to come to you, just before we do, please remember to just drop your questions in the Slido. So please just take a moment, hit the Slido, submit any questions you have for any of us. We will be transitioning to that in about 10 minutes or so. Ollie, habits, routines that you've observed in, in top performing sales reps? Talk to us. Yeah, I mean, what Tony said is, is right. It's not much different to that, really. I think that, I mean, we talked about make their performance predictable. And I think that anything that's, the people that I've seen that are the most predictable are the ones that see the value in sort of the small to medium average size deals. I think that predictability to me isn't just going big whale hunting and just doing one of those at once a year. Predictability is it's like how it's easier to get predictability in your commercial division than it is your enterprise division until you've got numbers and things. So I think it is the best AEs that I see get a predictable revenue kind of thing is they're ones that are smashing in the small to average order value week in, week out, and then they're doing the big ones to smash their target. And I think that makes a big difference. Also, the ones that understand where to concentrate their time, because a lot of, I think, a common mistake with AEs is, oh, I've got five deals that can close. All my time has to go there. And they're all going to close this month. And then at the end of the month, they're like, ah, I've got no pipeline. The best ones to me know that their things are coming to an end and they've got to keep filling up their pipeline. So know where to spend their time and their efforts. And also, I mean, we've had McMull come up a couple of times, qualify well. It's what he taught with Medic and stuff like that. And it, the best ones, I mean, the best salesperson I've ever worked with, a guy called Will Eves, who was at Sprinkler, and his understanding of Medic and how he qualifies was just to the T, just to a T, fantastic. And it, for a salesperson to be successful, if they qualify well and do a good discovery, they will close lo- close more deals than the average person. So they're the three things that I think make someone successful. It makes a ton of sense. I'd love to understand more from you, Ali. As as your team grows and scales, you know, naturally, just that point I mentioned around proximity starts to get compromised. And so how do you think about making sure that you can sustain some of these practices within your team as you do scale over time? Because as I say, the proximity starts to get cannibalized. Yeah, I mean, that's a tough question to answer because I, I think the easiest answer is it has to come from leadership. You've got to get the right leaders in place that are aligned with it, that are going to manage in the right way. I mean, once you've got 
120 people, 200 people in an organization. It can't be down to one person to follow this process. So it, again, returns to hiring the right people at the IC level, but also at the management level to make sure we can keep on top of it. But it's a tough question to answer. It's uh, just doing that and making sure you're managing the right way. Because I still, no matter how big the organization, I still manage by the metrics and making sure that I'm holding my first line, my second line and first line leadership accountable to metrics and making sure that's following through to the IC level. Apart from that, as long as you've got a purpose and a direction you're going in, it's hard to answer the question, I'm afraid. I understand and appreciate the, the candidness. So just one other thing I'd love to get from you is just thinking about operationally, some of the, the core practices. So when you just think about your week or the way that you encourage your team to spend their week, what are some of the operational practices that have really underpinned your continual success as a SaaS sales leader? I think it's building a rhythm myself. I think it's knowing I like to, for example, normally have a weekly sales meeting, a weekly forecast meeting, and it depends where they are on their forecasting journey. I'm currently a company that I'm introducing forecasting a little bit more with more rigor that we do it in a one-to-one. In the past, when we get everyone to a level, we do it as a team. So I think it's making sure that, I mean, first of all, I never want a meeting unless there's a reason for a meeting. I don't want to have a meeting for the sake of it where I'm sat there thinking, what should I put in that meeting? So I will cancel them if I don't need them. But one-to-one every week, forecast every week, weekly meeting every week. One thing that I'm trying to get with my team as well is for them to meet without me once a week because I think that now that we're remote, they can't sit in an office and look over their shoulder and say something. So I want them to have a meeting, not my agenda, their agenda, what they want to talk about, and then come back to me with stuff that they need. So that's how I see the rhythm operating for me. But I'm always, the rest of the time is to join calls with other people and be always there. I tend to not have too many one-to-ones, but always be, have you got five minutes now? They'll contact me over Slack and say, have you got 10 minutes? It's always yes and help them on deals. And also from your, it's getting the flow going. So on a forecast call, you're highlighting the deals that are big wins or the bigger deals, the, the sort of the best case deals that if you do a deal review, it's going to be more beneficial. So you then spot the deals to do a deal review and that comes into your rhythm as well. Got it. It's really helpful to, to peel back the curtains on that. Tony, talk to us about some of the key operational practices that have underpinned your career. Love the concept of rhythm of the business. I think that's the foundational element. And it's really, you know, similar to what Ollie said. It's about minimizing the allotment of time that is spent on internal meetings, but maximizing the outcomes of that minimal amount of time that you spend together, right? And so I really have have enjoyed in my career having a cadence that allows at a team level. So this is, it goes back to how do you teach your frontline managers how to operate their own rhythm and their own cadence? But I love a concept of sharing as a team. What did I accomplish this week? And that is a metric oriented, like how many net new meetings did I have? How many opportunities? How much business did I close, right? Those components. It creates a culture of accountability and a focus on, I need to accomplish certain things every single week. And then second pillar what did I learn? What are the things that I'm learning and that I'm seeing such that everybody's sharing and everybody's learning from each other? And then the third is, what do I need help with, right? It gives a forum for people to raise their hand such that it's not a quarter later and you find out, hey, I'm really struggling with this concept, right? 
And that, if you kind of create a rhythm of the business in a construct like that, it creates a culture of team and a culture of winning. And, uh, and those are things that I think are really, really important. Love it. I have a couple more questions or one question more each. So if you haven't already, please hit that Slido link, submit a question because after this, we will transition to that segment. So we've been in tough times, right? Not easy times over the recent period. And we've had to talk about this topic a lot, right? In terms of just the adjustments and the nuance of trying to operate and be effective in a recession, right? And so I'd just love to get each of your perspective on through the last 12 months or so, whether you've had to make any adjustments in terms of the way you've gone to market, the way you've thought about your overall go-to-market planning or beyond, just in light of the way things have been this year versus the the big tech bubble we had not too long ago. So Oli, I'll start with you on this one. Don't be awkward. It's a hard question to answer because I changed job. So I left Sales Loft a year ago and then I did some consultancy and then I joined Avacom. So, but I know that when I was at Salesforce, when COVID hit, yeah, we, we were agile and we changed, we all went remote, but we also changed the way that we talked about our solution. We brought into the fact that everyone is now remote. It can help you understand what your sales team are doing and what works better and stuff like that. So I think agility within how you talk about your product and what you do, you have to be agile. And I mean, in startups, it's very much about how do we decide quickly and how do we change direction quickly? So I think that, I mean, at the market, at the moment, the talent market is different. People want to stay somewhere, but then it can leave quite quickly and stuff. And I'm not talking about redundancies, I'm talking about other stuff. And I think that you've got to look at what you can control and what you can't control. A lot of things you can be agile with, but one of the things is the, the talent side that one of the biggest risks we have as leaders is that we can't control, but we can back up is talent, people leaving and all these kind of things. So making sure that we're building the talent pipeline for the future and thinking ahead of what we do in any market, I think is very important. And it's just keeping an eye on the leading indicators so that you're not purely looking at lagging indicators and it's too late. Very well said. Tony. Yeah, when the macro environment is challenging and, you know, let's just face it, today there are budget constraints, there are a lot more layers of approval required in order for purchases to be made. It basically, it trims the fat (laughs) in the world that we play in. You have to be great at what you do. So if you understand that there's more scrutiny and you understand that it's going to be higher levels of approval, well, you better come correct you better figure out how to build quantifiable you know, business objectives that align to a business case and justify a purchase. You better have multiple champions who have influence over the people who have discretionary authority to spend money. And if you do those things intentionally, you will stand out from your competitors. And so I kind of look at it, you know, probably sadistically as an opportunity because I know that all of my competitors, the vast majority of them are not going to be, you know, great at the art and the science of selling. And so in a down market, it gives me the opportunity to, you know, really showcase to my customers that, hey, not only is this the best product, but you're working with the best team. Very well said. Great answers from both. I'll I'll also add that there's sometimes in life where you just have to commit to being better. And that mental commitment means really taking the time to assess yourself, assess your book of business, 
the way you're going about your daily routine and habits. And through a time like this, that's absolutely what you've got to do. Sometimes you've got to say, look, I need to up level my execution. And so I'm going to look at every part of my sales campaign. I'm going to sit with my leadership team, with my mentors uh, and with myself and start to figure out ways that I can be better, right? And improve and get those 0.1% gains on a daily basis. And so hopefully that's all been helpful. We're going to transition to some questions now. So to kick us off, one by Richard Ashey. I read somewhere that only 57% of sales professionals hit their number slash targets. Can you share stories of how you have turned around underperforming sales folk? Any, either of you want to start with that? First of all, it's, I've had people underperforming that maybe sometimes aren't even in the right role. And I think it's, it's and that's not saying get out of my business. It's they may want to go into customer success or something because their skills may not be aligned with the current role they're in. I think that there's, and what else I would say is performance improvement plan. It's some companies purely see a PIP as I'm managing this person out of the business. But to me, it's not that clean cut. I think that it does what it says on the tin. It's to improve their performance. And we talked earlier about the recipe for success. And really, I think that if someone is underperforming, your decision as a leader is to go, okay, are they right for the role? Can they be successful? Because I'm going to give them the recipe to do it and I'm going to work with them to do it. And if they can't, at least we've tried. And by the end of that process, they'll probably go, it's not for me, but you're giving them the recipe. And so there's a lot of people that I've put onto pips, but for the positive reason, because let's go back to basics, let's track these kind of things. And then at the end of it, we know that you can do this job. and that's what's happened. So a lot of the time to me is just go back to basics and take them back to basics. Awesome. Tony, anything to add or we can move on yeah. to the next question? I think the, you know, you said earlier, Alex, like the proximity to your people, right? And if you think about, I mean, obviously depending on what product and how complex and all that, you know, that, that you sell, but the reality is there are a lot of elements required to be successful. It's, you have to not only have the right person, but the right person calling on the right customer's with the right support around them. And the reality is very few people are elite at every single component required in order to be successful. And so you have to be thoughtful about, are they doing the inputs that they're supposed to be doing? And then how do I, as a leader, ensure that I can complement maybe some of their weaknesses or, you know, and that may be from you as the manager, it may be from, hey, I have a technical pre-sales person that I pair with this person and I've got the right alignment of that person. You know, I might need to pair this person with a really strong SDR who can complement in these ways, right? And so you start thinking about how do I create a team that can allow this person to be successful? Yeah, great, great pieces there. I I would also add, I've, I've been in this same scenario more than once. And sometimes what I've observed is that you're walking a bit into the wild, wild west, right? All reps have a different perspective on what excellence actually is. And by just really focusing on the fundamentals, right? A clear plan that helps people understand how do I generate pipeline? How do I operate day to day? And how do I run a deal cycle? And just keeping it really simple and creating groundswell around that. It's incredible how you can actually get an underperforming team to start to become more effective because it's no longer a six different people with six different points of view around how to execute, but you create much more momentum and groundswell around a unified way of going to market 
And so the point from that is sometimes simplicity fundamentals can take you around the world. It's a famous boxing saying by Lennox Lewis where he says the jab can take you around the world. That's why I got Ali behind me. So that's a cheeky one to slip in there. Right, we got some more questions here. So let's go in order. The next one is SaaS selling in the post-COVID environment. What's working better for individual contributors who are closing revenue, Zoom slash virtual or seeking in-person customer interaction? I think there's a real opportunity to do, to maximize both, right? So figure out, Zoom allows you to be more efficient. You can get more volume. In-person allows you to truly build champions and, and get to do discovery that you wouldn't otherwise get to do. It allows you to differentiate yourself. You're not just another face on Zoom. You're a human being. And, you know, very quickly, I think you've got to find ways to get in person with your customers. And so depending on what territory you manage, what product you sell, who your buyers are, figure out what are the right ways to do that efficiently, right? I think you don't want to give up the benefit of remote and, you know, volume, um, but you, you've got to find a way to mix in some of that in person. Oli, anything you'd add? Not really. I mean, I think Tony said it. I mean, the only thing I would say is I think that using Zoom to qualify and then to make sure it's worth the travel, especially if in the US. I mean, in the UK, it's easy. I travel 20 minutes down the road and go see somebody. In the US, you go for a flight and stuff. And I think if you look back five years, how much time and money was spent by going to a meeting that wasn't going to lead to a deal and stuff like that, and it wasn't qualified properly. Now I think it gives us the opportunity to make sure that we're qualifying well before committing to the face-to-face. But I think the face-to-face are important because it does help us stand stand apart from our competitors. Hard, Hard to beat that human interaction. Next question is, how can I strike a balance between setting ambitious sales targets and ensuring that they are realistically achievable on a consistent basis? Should we stick with you here, Oli, to kick off? Yeah, it's most companies in the SaaS space go for a target of 4.5 to 5x your OTU. And that's the science of it. And if it's different to that, there's normally a reason behind it. I think that the way I think about it is that if you take a step back as to how that revenue is made up. So if I have a marketing team, I need 25% to 33% of revenue from the marketing team for each AE. And so if people are smashing their targets and they're on a 5x OTE, maybe the ratios of SDR to AE are wrong or the number of pipeline coming is wrong, that you need more headcount. But it's hard to, I mean, you just got to set something, got to make sure it's achievable because you've got to, I mean, 60% of sales teams should hit target sort of thing is what the data says and question later on about 57%, which is true. And most companies set targets so that 60% of team, of people hit target, which is fine because that's we can't all be overachievers and stuff. But yeah, it's got to be just stretch them, but not too far. Tony, I'm going to move to the next question with you, which is after landing a big deal, how do you evaluate what went right and build it into a repeatable process? Yeah, I think it's always important to learn. You know, I think there's more emphasis often on learning from failures. There's less emphasis on what went right. And so I think, you know, just the anatomy of the entire process, right? So how did we even get in touch with this person in the first place? Like, how do we get a meeting? 
and what was the message that was sent to get the meeting and, you know, through what medium and all that, and just like follow the entire, you know, buying process all the way through and, you know, get your successful reps to share what's working all the time. Just have a process for that. That could be part of your weekly rhythm of the business is like, Hey, here's one success story from one rep. And as the manager, it's your job to see like who's actually doing great work. I think one of the challenges in our industry is people either cheer for or yell at the scoreboard. It's like, it doesn't really necessarily mean that the person who at point in time, you know, one quarter, even one year is at the top of the scoreboard. They might have just gotten lucky. Like, let's just call it what it is. And some, you know, conversely, somebody who's in the middle of the pack or towards the bottom, they might actually be doing all the right things and it just hasn't, you know, fallen their way. And so I think just getting into the details is really, really important as a manager so that you understand these are the people that are doing really good work at each portion of the sales process. And so I would just, I would do it that way. Love it. I'm going to ask one final question. There's a couple more we're not going to quite get to, unfortunately, but feel free to reach out separately and I'll see if I can provide some perspective. So the last one we'll do is from Brett, which is what is one piece of advice you would give to your past self on how to run an accurate forecast? That might be your present self uh, in the case of you, Ali. Um, but please share some wisdom. I think past self, it, whether I was an AE or a manager, I'm not sure which they mean by that. But I think that a lot of the time, I personally believe that if you use Medic properly, it takes your happy years out of the sales process. And I think that there's a salesperson should be part robot, part human and have the empathy to go and build a relationship and trust, but part robot, which is actually the medic side. And if you look at Andy White's book on medic, there's a score sheet of how you actually judge score each letter. And having that as a process to go, right, have we got the metrics? Have we got the champion? Have we got a person, what the personal winners of the champion and all of these kind of things? And taking the happy years out, that's what I think drives a better forecast, that it's a, you're literally putting it through a computer to say, what's the score? Should we forecast it? This score is too low. You need to actually increase that score before you put it as forecast or worst case or anything like that. That's all I'd say. Awesome. Tony, anything you'd add before we wrap? Well, really, I would just say, you know, early in my career, I kind of had like good instincts. So I could just like tell you if a deal was going to happen. And that was usually right. And so I was able to forecast my own deals. I think when I first transitioned into a frontline management role, it was a challenge for me because I had happy years, right? Like I was a little bit optimistic on the forecast because I always believed like, oh, I could just make it happen, right? And, you know, the further you are away from the customer, the less your capability is to do that. And so MedPick was a big one for me and, you know, getting a lot more skepticism in deals and, you know, putting it through that lens just forces you to say, all right, we got all of our T's uh, crossed and our I's dotted. Love it. Love it. Well, look, Tony and Ollie, super grateful for both of your time. I hope that everyone who's been listening has found it valuable. We will get this recording sent out via the newsletter. So again, Tony, Ollie, thank you. Very grateful. And we look forward to seeing you all on the next one. Thank you. Thanks, Take care, all. Cheers. Thanks for tuning in. Never miss a tactic or actionable insight by subscribing to On Target wherever you get your podcasts. And if you gain value from the show, I would love it if you could share it with a friend and give us a five-star review. See you next time.